Koto listeners, welcome to Circuit Cast. It's your pod on the visual arts and moving image from Aotearoa, New Zealand and beyond. We're down in the wonderful fair city of Dunedin and I'm in the studio of the artist John Ward-Knox. Kia ora to you, John. Kia ora. How do you do? How do you do to you? Now, we're here. It's the 50th anniversary of the Francis Hodgkins Artist Fellowship and it felt appropriate to interview you as the 2015 fellow, but I think the fellowship's finished and you're still here. Yeah, that happens. What happened? Well, I got comfortable and I got an amazing space. And uh, yeah, it looks pretty great. Yeah, it's it's a functional city and it's without a lot of the economic pressures that other centres in New Zealand have. And there's a pretty good community of musicians who I've grown to love. And whilst that might not seem a um, a direct marriage between fine art and and music they provide enough inspiration to stay here. Are there other good things about being here in terms of sustaining an arts practice, do you think? Space is a big one. Yeah. And also being able to get out into the ridiculous environs of Otago, which are just mind-boggling, and they're 15 minutes drive away. Now, the fellowship, let's just rest on that for a Mm. second. Mm. I think you get offered like pretty much like a salary in an office for 12 months. Is that how it works? Yeah, you get a studio and a salary. And so every two weeks, uh, some digits appear in your bank statement, and you can do whatever you like. They ask you to engage with the university students as much as you can, but unfortunately the Hocken was a little bit understaffed due to the neoliberalising of the university. And so, <laughs> um, so I shouldn't bite the hand that feeds. But You but, can, you've left now. Yeah, I'm, I'm now an ex-fellow, <laughs> I'm done with that. They traditionally offer quite a lot of support, but some of that was rescinded due to economic constraints and the fact that the wonderful staff there are under all sorts of pressure to perform three jobs simultaneously. But 12 months sounds ridiculously good. I mean, my memory from my term growing up was that this was the kind of fellowship in New Zealand to get as an artist. Is that still the case? Because there are quite a lot of other different residencies. I I think so. I think it's still the one, and I'm completely spoiled now. (laughs) I go to work and I'm... I'm a nightmare. <laughs> going to work, you're working at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. What, what are you doing there? So I'm the collections assistant. I scurry around in the basement making things prim and proper and making sure everything is not sustaining damage and repairing any damage that has happened. Yeah, and being the sort of the right hand of the registrar and the conservator. Your work is known, I guess, for its, its intimacy sometimes, I would say. Is getting intimate with historically significant artwork useful, interesting Yeah, that's a funny question because it's intimate in a way like a surgeon is intimate with the body. It's a, it's a, you have to be a lot more objective rather than subjective coming to these artworks. You have to treat every artwork as equally as reverently, and there is reverence around it, but mostly sort of a monetary reverence. Like it's got capital value as opposed to cultural value, and so I find it quite disheartening in a lot of ways to find myself thinking about artworks that I'm engaging with. So I'm, I'm learning a lot about how to handle artworks and how to treat them properly and how to preserve them, but it's not actually doing a lot for my sense of what art can do. Maybe for what art has done, but not for ah, what art can do. So it's not necessarily a good place for generating new ideas. Yeah, I don't think so. What about Dunedin in general? Is the kind of space and the landscape good for that, do you think? Or? I think Dunedin's pretty good. I think Dunedin's good for exploring your um, 
in a gothic temple if you've got one. <laughs> well, and I think everyone in New Zealand's got an inner gothic temple, so I think, <laughs> I think it's a pretty good place for exploring that. Because your, your work is quite sensitive to sight often. Hmm. Do you think it's you seeing changes in your work that are reflective of this place? Um, we say looking across the studio at your recent Hocken show, I think, we're looking at. Yeah, there's been some changes, but they haven't really materialised yet, even though, even though I presented a body of work at the end of my Hodgkin's year. That still didn't really reflect what the city has done. I've developed a writing practice, or I've expanded on my writing practice since being here, and I think that's the primary materialisation of this place in word form rather than in object form. You know, you've started a website, Spam Diaries. Are you able to talk a little about that? So last year I was working on my own project called Spam Diaries, which was just uh, diaristic journal entries, which were sort of an open-ended idea about what writing was. So I just um, sort of described things around me. And then I wanted to put that into a more open domain and to sort of anonymise the contributors. And so I have started this website where I've invited a bunch of different contributors, including yourself, um, yeah. to contribute anonymously a piece of prose or fiction or anything, really. Um, there's been a few poems and there's been a few descriptions and just to create a space for very subjective voices to come out, but to not have the flavouring of a dominant sort of pre-description of what this is going to be via what you know of the author. It's slowed down a little bit, but it's ramping back up. I've got a number of contributions yet to be published, which, yeah, they really just sort of push the envelope of what it is to have a personal voice yet not be attributed to a singular person. Yeah, I, I found it really empowering to not be beholden to one's label was, was a really, really nice thing. It must be very much so, in, I would imagine, in the, the fine arts, mm. where, you know, you this is a John Ward Knox yeah. work, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's getting away from that brand thing, isn't it? And the sort of the capitalising structures that are associated and inescapable with that brand identity. Yeah. Back to the to the, what we might traditionally call art. The, yeah. the Hocken show felt, in some ways, more traditional in the way that we've got some framed paintings, and in fact nudes, you know, yeah. close-ups of nudes, and very large wooden frames. I was interested in why you chose to go this route, because I have read some criticism that felt that you were almost being quite conventional in your approach. Yeah. Um, well, the, the funny thing is, is that the, what was uh, presented was half of the show. Well, it, it was actually a quarter of the show, really. Um, half of the end of your presentation was the publication that I put out alongside it, um, which is three books bound in a single case, which documents the journalistic processes that I've been through to get there. A bunch of writings, maybe 30 entries under the title of Spam Diaries. And then documentation of shows that I've had over the year. And then at the end of that book is a letter from the Ministry of Health, co-signed by Detective Inspector somebody or other, I forget his name, Scott something or other, (laughs) saying uh, that... Further to consultation with the Ministry of Justice and lawyers which we've got on board, your importation of human remains is judged to be disrespectful and we urge you to sign them over to us to get rid of in a respectful manner, i.e. burn. Um, (laughs) And that was because I was continuing a project which I started earlier in the year of carving in human bone 
and alongside the paintings were going to be blades of grass which were going to be carved out of ribs and that was what they had objected to me importing into the country. The thing that interested me was that there was no hard line drawn. They said that we suspect that it is, runs counter to the Human Tissues Act and to the Crime Act. Right. But they didn't definitively state that, and they rested their case on, on morals, actually, which I thought was really interesting because the whole project around carving human remains was to highlight the discrepancy between the way that we moralistically treat people after they've gone and their remains are therefore sacrosanct and the way that we treat them while they're alive which is as competitors and as there's much less reverence around the idea of a living human than there is around the idea of a dead human yeah. and I find that quite a strange a really strange thing and, and a topic to be explored yeah well interestingly my producer's question around that work was whose remains they were um, yeah uh, is that something that concerns you? I mean, because it's interesting with the paintings in a way, when we yeah. objectify a nude or yeah. a body part, we move it out of it being known. The whole process of acquiring these, because they came from a... To give a little bit of context, I had done one work with them previously with body parts where I'd carved ashtrays out of parietal bones, which is one of the skull bones, mm. and cigarette butts out of finger bones. And so... I displayed those already and they got through customs fine because their value was less than $400 so they didn't need to take tax off. <laughs> um, and so it was only the tax man that raised the, uh, raised the concerns in the end. Under $400 and you're fine, you can do anything. <laughs> so that's where the project originated and they were sourced from what I could tell it was a, a completely legal process but there are so many grey areas. They were sold from a website called skullsinternational.com. No, skullsunlimited.com, which tells you something. And they ship from the United States. Their sources were quite foggy. I had to do a little, some research to find out where they were probably from. There's no definitive answer about where they are actually from, but Bodies Donated to Science was one major source. And then there was some vaguely worded description of stockpiles that existed previous to 1980 I think it was right and anything that was in those stockpiles was fair game and in the 1980s I think there was harsher regulation that got put around the um, sale and supply of human remains until that point I think most of them had come out of China right and previous to the 1970s <laughs> the trade was out of India and so probably I think what I was dealing with was bones that had been sold from China to America and then to New Zealand, which a lot of people get very squeamish about. And there's a lot of cultural unknowns and there's a lot of political unknowns. There's a lot of grey and very murky and very sensitive conversations that can be engendered by this project, I think, in a way which outweighs the... I think, uh, outweighs the problematics. Speaking of the market, because you work across so many different media, mm. and we were even talking about spam diaries before, mm. there's clearly a whole vein of your practice that is far more marketable mm. and commercial than others, mm. and, and that focuses around your paintings and drawings or, or the web sculptures and mm. so forth. How much are you now, do you feel, in terms of having to make a living as an artist, kind of balancing continue to create work for a, a dealer market demand and yeah. and satisfying your own need to kind of push forward your practice? Well, I made the, the 
decision to keep the representational side of my practice. Probably in my fourth year of university, I decided to keep doing that because I was at a crossroads where I could either go, um, in my mind, fully conceptual or just keep making representative artworks or try and keep them contemporary to one another and keep invested in both. And I decided to do that and... While there is a side that's more commercial to my practice, I'm finding that more and more it's become problematic in that I still engage with it as much as I do with the other projects, but the commercial side of things, it's actually not holding up. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, the sort of the bottom's dropping out of that market, and I hate to speak so frankly and monetarily, but I do a lot with my practice to stop being that guy, and you mentioned the yes. webs, and those are sort of, there was a danger there of becoming the that web guy. guy. Which I really don't want to be. Because I'm sure there's plenty of people who want webs for their houses out yeah, there. Yeah, and, I'm, and I was happy with the smaller scale works, and I've done a few of those for, for people. But when you expand them up, it becomes a whole different thing. And um, I've had the zoo interested, and I've had various people interested. Yeah. Uh, and I, don't, I just I want to cut that <laughs> out of my life forever. Could I ask you about oh. the moving image works that you've yeah. done and where they sit? They play with time or subject in interesting ways and, and I was wondering whether you actually carry a camera around with you and what makes you stop and kind of create a video work. Hmm. I've started capturing a lot of footage on my phone. It's only a slight drop in production values from the camera that I used to carry around which was just a stills camera which had a video function. Like a, It wasn't even an SLR, it was just a relatively cheap digital camera, a Sony found that too cumbersome to carry around with me so often I would see something that I was interested in capturing and then I would revisit the site intentionally to capture that thing which appears as chance but is something that I saw which was a phenomena which is repeatable enough that you can recapture it right um, and I think I think I like going back intentionally to capture something because it stops being quite so specifically about chance. The way that I like chance to come into my works, because I think there's something incredibly poetic about chance, is with duration, and that if you just leave a camera on something for long enough, the incidentals get more weight and they become much more beautiful than the original poetic inspiration of whatever you saw. So a small piece of drifting skin or something in a beam of sunlight becomes beautiful even if it's completely cliched it becomes beautiful in the way that it interacts with a bug that's crawling along the surface of a table. How, how, how much do you shoot? I mean do you end up with like 20 videos and you choose two that you're going to exhibit? Yeah, maybe 20% end up being videos. Right. Yeah, I've got a bunch on my phone at the moment which I can't capture again and they're probably not good enough quality to actually make their way into the into the world as quote unquote artworks. Right. But so I'm looking at ways to present those in slightly less rarefied form so rather than in an artistic platform like in a gallery or something maybe just to create a channel or to create a um, uh, an online presence for them similar to spam diaries where you can just deposit pieces of information or captured footage which really don't have to be commercialized they can just exist and be essentially gifted for people to engage with with no commercial constraints John Ward-Knox, thanks for you. Good luck with both the gift economy and the commercial market and uh, (laughs) your continued prosperity in Dunedin. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on CircuitCast and thank you to Talautalon for the theme music and Creative New Zealand for the DOSH. Kia ora.